Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week is a special edition. We're devoting the entire episode to Russia's war in Ukraine. Friday, February 24th, of course, marks one year to the day when Vladimir Putin launched his all-out assault on Ukraine. That was a decision that unleashed the largest war in Europe since 1945. It's brought hundreds of thousands of casualties on all sides. We're going to consider where we are now in the conflict and the prospects for bringing the war to an end. Joining me down the line from Kiev is Maria Yonova, a Ukrainian opposition MP. A very warm welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great to have you with us. Joining us from Paris is Samantha Debenden, an associate fellow with our Russia and Eurasia program. Welcome to the show, Sam. Hello. Hello, everybody. Also very good to have you. And here at Chatham House are two regulars, Patricia Lewis, the director of our international security program. Hi, Patricia. Hello, Norman. Patricia struggling with <laughs> voice uh, from many, many conferences, including the Munich Security Conference, which we'll come on to. I have every sympathy. And James Nixie, the director of our Russia and Eurasia program. Welcome back. Morning, Bronwyn. Thank you. Great to have you all here. Well, Ukraine invasion one year on. Let's look at the state of the conflict in Ukraine today. Maria, I wonder if you can start this for us. Can you describe the mood in Kiev a year on? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Ron. Three words. Uh, it is strong, resilient and optimistic. And uh, we are keep fighting. And we uh, really appreciate the whole free world uh, to be with us. Uh, and that is why first point is that the year, um, the year of uh, this tragic uh, day for Ukrainian nation um, is and united as never before. And that is why when you represent me as an opposition, yes, we are opposition democratic um, party and faction in the parliament, European solidarity. But believe me, we are now one, one party named Ukraine and we are fighting and uh, we are united and uh, uh, we are ready to fight um, uh, further because we enjoy really unprecedented political unity, uh, unity of civil society, uh, business elites, and we see how Ukraine, you know, is a small organism, very creative, very um, operative, and um, that is why, of course, it's the leadership of our uh, army, uh, volunteers, and the most important uh, thing to each other uh, for us. And the goal uh, is um, the only one to win, to win and to win as soon as possible and to win as we can. Uh, and also um, point number two, I would like to say that Europe and the world have seen really the true face of uh, Russia aggression uh, regime because it's uh, uh, brutal, imperialistic and criminal. Uh, and I think that now uh, when we hear Russian culture, this Russian culture we could see in Bucha, in Izum, in Irpin and in Mariupol. So that's the real face of uh, Russia culture. Thank you for that. I wanted to ask you what you felt was the most important point of President Joe Biden's visit this week, what you took from that. Uh, of course, it's very optimistic and very symbolic, uh, symbolic of unity, of solidarity, of uh, unwavering support and uh, also commitment of the free world to back Ukraine uh, in our fight, because the main signal was that we are all together 
uh, till uh, our victory. And this also was very great message to our armed forces, to our society, to the alliance and to Kremlin also that U.S. support is strong and will last as long as it needed in this war. Of course, uh, uh, we need it as soon as possible. And also, um, we also would like to hear the answer, what is the victory of Ukraine and what is to defeat Russia? We'll come on to that. But thank you very much indeed for that. James, we've heard from Maria, uh, the, uh, the voice of the resilience of, of Ukraine. We're also hearing a lot about the potential spring offensive. How would you describe the state of the conflict now as we come out of the winter? Yeah, that's right. Wars come in phases and we are at the stage of the Russian offensive. It's been going on now for uh, two to three weeks already, in fact. Um, but perhaps the reason we haven't heard more about it in some respects is because it's been quite anemic, underwhelming, shall we say. Um, it's, it is going on at about five or six points along along the front line. Um, the Russians make occasional small gains, but they've had some pushbacks as well in Vulaha in particular, quite humiliating. And I think it'll last for maybe, maybe another month or so. Um, and to be honest, the Russians don't have much more up their sleeve. There's not going to be some second Russian offensive coming along down the line, or at least not immediately, and not without uh, a further round of mobilization, which will have its own problems as well. Um, <clears throat> then there's the likelihood of a Ukrainian counteroffensive, um, probably in the spring. They may also need a round of mobilization for that, and it will be costly to the Ukrainians. Um, and then I think beyond that, beyond spring, we'll have to see what, what Ukraine is going to get in terms of kit from, from the West, and we don't know that yet. So maybe a good time to be looking at this war almost is, is in the fall, in the autumn. Um, because I think that's when things are going to change. My, my, my bottom line would be that, that the war, I'm sorry to say, is not going to end this year. I don't think so, but it will be a very decisive year. And I just want to pick up that point that, that you had in the middle there, that um, from now, just coming out of the winter until the autumn, we might be looking at something, not quite a stalemate, but a, 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 you know, a, war, a war that is um, you know, pushing on both sides but not, not really a breakthrough. Pushing on both sides, but not simultaneously, not a breakthrough. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's very difficult to say the outcome of specific battles in wars, so you can't, we can't say much for certain. It's not impossible that uh, the line will implode at one point or another, but I think it is a, it is a, it's punch and counterpunch. It may be quite clear. I'm not asking for predictions. <laughs> um, Samantha, uh, President Putin spoke this week. He set out his justifications for the war in a very long speech. What did that speech tell you about his the state about the state of Russia and the state of the war? Well, I was reminded, in fact, of, of what Joseph Goebbels said back in the 1930s, that if you repeat a lie often enough and it's big enough, people will actually start to believe it. So he gave two big speeches this week. Well, he gave one big speech uh, to the State of the Nation. He gave a very short speech yesterday at the Luzhniki Stadium to a, a a stadium packed with about 80,000 people. The narrative that Putin has pushed through is that the West started this war. It was falsehood upon falsehood upon falsehood. In, in the State of the Nation address, what was interesting was that in nearly two hours, he only said one thing which was interesting, was that Russia will be suspending its participation in the START, the New START Treaty, which is the treaty which limits the amounts of nuclear warheads uh, that each that the US and Russia is able to have. That was the only thing of significance. He had absolutely no battlefield victories to report. Now, the State of the Nation address was supposed to have taken place actually in December, and it was cancelled. The official reason was oh, there were scheduling conflicts. But of course, we all know that the reason is that he had nothing to say. And he had nothing to say earlier this week. 
the only thing he could say was completely reframe the narrative that the West has attacked Russia. And this was repeated again yesterday to a, a crowd of people who had often, many of them had actually been paid to attend. And we've, some of my, my I also work as a journalist, and some of my colleagues have actually been on the ground in Moscow speaking to people who were talking about how they were coerced into going there. It, it was a three-minute speech in a, in a two-hour concert, which is basically the same thing. We are have been we have been attacked by the West and we're defending ourselves. What is worrying about this is that this narrative is being drummed in so much to the Russian population that people are really beginning to believe it. That there's a parallel universe that is being built out there, which is actually quite scary when one thinks about how this war will actually end if there's a population that is convinced, or a lot of them are, that they have been attacked by the West. Patricia, you spent a lot of this week writing about Russia uh, suspending its participation in the New START treaty. How important is it? So it is important, the fact that it is the last remaining bilateral nuclear weapons treaty between the United States and Russia. There are other multilateral treaties in which Russia participates. Uh, but there was a veiled threat in addition to the announcement of suspension in New START, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, uh, which was on the issue of nuclear weapons testing. And we hear today that, you know, the Putin is saying that the reasons behind suspending participation in the treaty uh, is to develop its nuclear weapons arsenal, which it's already doing. Uh, but this would leave, if they abrogated the New START limits, no more inspections, which is part of the suspension, but they haven't happened throughout the whole of the COVID pandemic either. Um, but also stop notifications of missile tests, for example, and in particular times of, of crisis, this is really important. And then if they um, started to look at testing nuclear warheads again, then everything that's been built up in the nuclear security realm, the arms control, the deterrence, the understanding of how dangerous these weapons are, the humanitarian impact of them will be unraveled completely. Um, and we will see proliferation as well uh, and a very dangerous situation in times of crisis such as, as now. So how seriously should we take it? Very, on one level. And on the other level, it's part of that whole thing he's trying to do, which is to scare us. So we're in a sort of really difficult situation, I think, in, in the West on how to respond to all of this. Well, look, thank you all for that. We've sort of outlined where we are now, what the conflict looks like right now, some of the things that happened this week from Joe Biden to the uh, the START Treaty. Let's, let's begin to look at where it goes from here. And Maria, I wanted, if you could comment on what Samantha said about the way she, as she put it, that the Russian people very likely were beginning to believe what President Putin was saying about the causes of the war just because he is saying it so often. Uh, you're right. I mean, he's saying the same things during uh, all his um, uh, power for 22 years. And uh, um, he also has to say it and to repeat it because he also has to mobilize his people. Uh, and the issue is uh, that our point... Um, uh, that they will uh, understand uh, totally only when we are as Ukrainian uh, society, as Ukrainian armed forces, together with the support of our partners, 
we will demilitarize Russia. And uh, uh, unfortunately, Russia society is sick. Sick because when um, almost 90% of uh, population is supporting killing Ukrainian and providing genocide in Ukraine, so it means that uh, really this society um, has uh, need time to be recovered. And in this uh, regard, uh, I'd like to underline that uh, uh, believe us, uh, my, for example, part of my family, we are under occupation. Uh, together with my colleagues, uh, uh, we are um, going and visiting different villages, towns immediately after liberation of our armed forces, Kherson region, Kharkiv region, Sumer region. And when we see all this tortured room in on the train station, when we, when we speak with the people of uh, this um, absolutely unhuman issue, so um, I can say that uh, really uh, Russia society is sick. But when we are talking about mobilized uh, Russian army, uh, they are good trained. And you know that now immediately like this, these days, we have a huge concentration of Russian army near Chernigov border on Kharkiv and uh, on uh, all front line. And that is why, that is why we are really asking for more uh, military support for Ukraine to defend, to defend our uh, land, to defend our people. And uh, really, um, our key concern uh, is really the scale of Ukrainian losses. I mean, believe us, the last two months, I mean, personally, uh, friends, uh, uh, also one of the relatives, all wounded, all killed, all missing person. And these numbers are huge. And that is why we can minimize the, all this increased and speed up only by supply of modern weapon and ammunition to Ukrainian yeah. army. No, thank you for that point. James, just picking up on that, I mean, this question about what Russians uh, believe and the state of Russia it's, itself, which is absolutely crucial to looking at how this conflict might end. Yeah, absolutely. And I can take it back to the speech that you've already referenced, Putin's State of the Nature this mm. week, because, <laughs> first of all, it, was, it really was an almost two-hour yawn fest. But, uh, but, but, but more than that, I mean, <clears throat> it was... So we can't it was, afford uh, yawn. I mean, it, No, you know, absolutely it, not. And I'm, I'm, I will take it seriously for this respect, in this respect. But it, but it was a lot of self-delusion. There were outright lies, empty promises. And that's, that's my point, is the empty promises. Because, yes, he was trying to show up the Russian people's confidence in him, in the course of the war, and in the future of the country. But it's just not going to be that way. I mean, Russia is going to get poorer and poorer, faster and faster as the sanctions bite um, and as Russia self-depletes in, in this war, in the course of this war. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that the country will implode. I'm not saying we can sanction our way to victory in this war. I'm saying that the country is propelling itself into a poverty spiral. Samantha, I wonder if you can come in on this. You're joining us today from Paris, and I'd love to hear the French, um, what you make of the French position on this because of course President Macron has been uh, taken lead in some respects in trying to um, talk to Russia in trying to see if there's any way to you know begin to broker some kind of resolution to this that has obviously been very controversial where is France now in this? I would say there's been a, a, a pretty remarkable shift. A, a year ago, um, there was definitely a sense in France, not only with Macron talking about the need for dialogue, the need to not humiliate Russia. I think everybody remembers the, the outrage that some of those comments caused. 
And he has been changing his his in a way, the fact that he was in contact with Putin and saw Putin's reaction and was able to actually witness firsthand Putin's lies has really um, changed the French attitude. And if the, this was really, really visible in Macron's speech in Munich. Uh, last week, when he he said, you know, Putin lied to me about Wagner, and of course there will have to this, be. This is this is this is the Wagner point. group. This is the Wagner group. The Wagner Putin, group. Yeah, yeah. Putin has brought yeah, so into play to help fight for him. Exactly. So so uh, Putin said to Macron, oh, the Wagner group have nothing to do with me. They're not involved in Ukraine. I don't know what this is about. And of course, a year later, we see the Wagner group as being a very important player on the battlefield in Ukraine. And Macron's tone about Russia, he said, now is not the time for dialogue. And this is, is a really big shift. And I spent a lot of time speaking to French generals who've also really come over to really understand the threat that Russia and Putin's Russia poses. Of course, there are still some of the voices who say, oh, we, we have to negotiate and you know, Russia is, is, is part of Europe and uh, Russian values are close to French values. But those voices are really, really becoming rarer and rarer. And what is really interesting is Macron also said last week that there would have to be some kind of dialogue to understand the place of France's nuclear deterrence in European security. And France has increased its defence budget by 40%. To this has been noticed, munitions. yes. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and France would not be opposed to, to aircraft. That is something that I'm getting speaking to, to people in, in the know in France, let's say, that... Uh, this would have to be something that would be decided at an allied level. But Macron has said this is not excluded and he has not come back on that. It's a really in interesting so point you're making because this, yeah. this is this is a yeah, more there's growing European unity, if you like, more than it seemed right at right at the beginning of this. Um, Patricia, I'm going to ask you the big question. You, you've been working on a set of scenarios for how the war might play out. And there is intense interest in Chatham House uh, and our many supporters and followers um, about what you're coming up with. Can you just tell us a bit about where you've got to in that? Yes, indeed. And, and James has been working on this as well and, and, and some other James members. James is nodding. Teams. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so we, we've got um, uh, various scenarios which have various levels of instability in Russia, various outcomes of, of uh, this war in the longer run. And what we're trying to do is stress test what these might mean for decision makers and then what might happen with the decisions they made make and the unintended consequences of, of them. So this is what we're really look, looking at. And, um, you know, Various uh, eventual outcomes uh, are possible, um, including increased stability, instability. Sorry, in uh, in in Russia and in Europe, uh, it could also lead to all-out nuclear war, um, as is, is the worst possible outcome. And I think this is what uh, decision makers all over the world are trying to do: is to pass that and try to reduce the worst possible outcomes, but every one of them has got a different idea about how to do that.
Yeah, uh, I just want to underline because, yes, the big shift has been uh, changed. But again, Russia is still trying to destroy us. And Russia is still would like to erase us as a Ukrainian identity. And uh, Putin cannot change himself. Maria, I'm really sorry. Because okay. of the phone ringing, we have to just do that bit again. Ah, phone's still ringing. Ah, sorry. Isabel. Isabel. I, I, I'm sorry. That's, that's right. Not, it's not Isabel. Uh, it's about the plenary. I'm sorry. Don't worry. Uh, and uh, that is why, but we, we really uh, could make him change uh, his behavior. Maria, I'm sorry. Just wait for the bell to stop. It's a really important point. We want to. Uh, we, we want. So we'll just wait for that to. Okay. I want. Okay. Thank you. I think you've managed to silence it. That's terrific. Could you, um, could you possibly start again? Just at that point you're making. So we're on the scenarios. Uh, Russia is still trying to destroy us and Russia is still would like just to erase us from the world map and, you know, to delete us as a Ukrainian identity. And that is why Putin cannot change his behavior himself. But uh, really acting together, we could make uh, him change uh, his plans, behavior and bring him back to reality. And that is why, you know, everyone is saying that uh, we're uh, some afraid of Russia, scared of Russia. They have to be scared of us, of our strong unity and uh, um, uh, support of Ukrainian army because uh, Ukraine has never uh, invaded uh, or attacked uh, anybody. Russia has. And Ukraine has never in invaded Russia territory. Russia has. And Ukraine has never scaled any war. Russia has, and not only in Ukraine. And I think that a lot of global leaders, unfortunately, they will close eyes on the truth for uh, a lot of years. And I think that this is really a true time, uh, you know, uh, not to be afraid of Russia, to have such great unity and solidarity, uh, and, uh, you know, to be uh, not on the words only very effective, but be effective on the, in the actions. Because when we will speak about sanction policy, Unfortunately, after one year, the, most, the majority of Russian banks are still now working with the SWIFT. I mean, I, they are still SWIFT on. And uh, that is why I think that we do not have to, we like don't wait until it's too late and not to be afraid. I think that this is a great change in the minds of our European and uh, big partners and leaders. Important point. Thanks. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't disagree with a word. Patricia and Maria have both said absolutely. And, and I think Ukrainians have particularly been very good at cautioning us against undue optimism. But there is, I, I, can't, I can't help but say that there's a possible silver lining. Um, with the, the poverty spiral in Russia, with the fact that they are depleting themselves, the possibility of an implosion along the front line, the possibility of a palace coup in Russia, the historical precedent of a, a very uh, a particularly authoritarian leader being followed by a less authoritarian leader. There, there is a way out of this which, which is a little bit more optimistic than thermo-global nuclear war. I'm not saying it will happen. I'm not known for my optimism. That's, Russia, re that's really possible. good to hear, James. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that as a bit of, of optimism. But what you're saying, you, you see, if I'm uh, yeah. hearing it rightly, that there's no good outcome with Putin still there. Uh, absolutely. That, that, I think that, that's done for. The Ukrainians are pretty insistent on that. But I think the West has probably learned their lessons as well. Mm. And Patricia, is that your view and your scenarios that uh, there's no negotiation possible with Putin there? I think that's absolutely right, and I think he's made that clear as well. Uh, so it really is about uh, whether or not it's possible to get a change in Russia before um, we get to a point of of more serious situation. And the manner of that change, how he leaves office. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's. We've yeah. had just and several. I, I, I agree with that. Okay. 
Okay, well, then we have agreement. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not commenting myself with agreement. All our panelists. Let's just take a step back. Not very long, but it seems a long time ago to the Munich Security Conference. A whole a whole week ago, whole f- five six days ago, um, and I just wanted to put to you all a point that struck me very forcefully there, which was many countries, many describing themselves as from the global south, uh, Brazil uh, as well. I was interviewing the foreign minister, saying. Look, this isn't um, this isn't our fight. Um, uh, we're not going to take sides. Please don't ask us to take sides. And some countries, particularly poorer ones, saying with some passion, um, you don't take anything like as much interest in our conflicts, our refugees. Um, you know why? Why not? We're we're not going to help you in this. And Maria, I wanted to start with you. What you would say to those countries, or how how you respond to that? Of many countries saying. This is a squabble between European countries. It has no relevance to us. Uh, I will start that um, nine years ago, the international law was violated. One year ago, uh, with the full-scale invasion, the global order has been ruined. And now to restore um, international law, dignity, humanity, it is. It could be done on the battlefield in Ukraine, and I think uh, that is why it is uh, also all the democratic leaders has realized that the democracy shall learn to hold a weapon in self-defense, and that is why the changes of the budgeting and such positions and so on. But I think that uh, if again, as uh, starting from two thousand fourteen, to let uh, Putin. Uh, you know, to, to, to close on many issues eyes, uh, it will be for him a green line to go further. And that is why now it's much more cheaper to invest to Ukraine, to be with Ukraine, then it will be much more expensive for other society when he will go further. And in this regard, of course, we have to be very cautious and very wise with China. As uh, uh, from our side in the Parliament of Ukraine, believe us, we are, we started to work with South America, with India, with uh, Brazil, with that countries who abstained. Uh, we are trying to find the ways how to speak about it's it, again. It's not about Ukraine now. This war is about democracy as it's a strong instrument, or we will let dictators to. Uh, forcefully to grab lands and territories and to kill, to to to, to rape, uh, just without any punishment and uh, uh, justice. Okay, you've got so lo- lots justice. lots of arguments there. Justice, international law, um, the suffering of of people going on, the cost for other countries. Uh, if this is if this this is not um, if Putin is not defeated in some way, Patricia, you you're in Munich as well, and Maria's just uh, absolutely crucially brought in the question of China, which is producing its own plan on our. Ukraine, obviously slightly discomforted by its relationship with Russia. Um, what do you make of this challenge by other countries, which we heard very loudly at Munich? Yes, indeed. And, and I think it's it's a fair point. Um, there have been wars all over the world and they remain unresolved. And we essentially, uh, you know, we, we the West does pay attention to them. Certainly the UN pays attention. But um, in terms of really pushing for resolution, etc., less so than they may like. Um, I would just say this to all the countries around the world, trade, the interconnectedness of us all, 
the issue of food security, energy security, and if there's a nuclear exchange, we're talking nuclear winter, even on a regional basis, a 10-year famine globally. And all the modeling for that's been done. So let's not ignore that aspect. And then my final point would be on China. And that is that, you know, is China having a good war? Um, it has managed to position itself as a friend of Russia, but not the enemy of the West yet. Um, and what is it buying up? What, how is it? It's buying up all sorts of uh, resources around the world. What's it buying up in, in Russia? What will be the quid pro quo for the support? If there will be weapons support, for example, what could be the quid pro quo uh, for China on that? Okay, Samantha. Yes, I, I, you know, obviously being in France, this is something that comes up all the time. And I think that at some point, Europeans and, and, and Britain within that have to actually accept the fact that this is a war of self-defense and say, yes, we are paying more attention to this war because it is a war that is being waged against us. It's not just about America wanting to spread democracy and spread values to, to other parts of the world. It is about our region being under direct existential threat and we are defending ourselves. I don't think we should be afraid to actually say that, to say, yes, we, we do. We are paying more attention. Yes, we are even paying more attention to these refugees because many of these people have family members in our part of the world. And I, I, it's a little bit, I realise this is contentious ground, but I think it's important to say this for our own populations and for the rest of the world to say, hey guys, we are defending ourselves here and you have to allow us to defend ourselves really important point and it did occur to me sitting in munich that this is something that the the the, the west if i can use that term cannot take for granted of just asserting these things it's actually an argument that it has to win including at home james can you wrap this all up for us well very briefly on on, on russia china i mean again i agree with patricia but but it seems that china does not want russia to lose this war that's pretty crucial but it doesn't want russia to become an iran or a north korea so it's trying to navigate this in battle. what sense in particular uh, the unreliability of a nuclear exchange etc that, that kind of thing so so China really wants Russia sort of as, as weak and uh, debilitated as it is because then it can exploit Russia as it does. And then on the global south, I mean, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting debate. But I mean, obviously, I understand that they're not as concerned of European security as the Europeans. That's natural. But on the other hand, one, I mean, uh, maybe I could ask you, I mean, what is what is the importance of the global south in this? Because obviously, in, in country terms, it far, far exceeds Euro European terms. But in GB GDP terms, it, it, it's not it's not even close. So how, my question to you, Bronwyn, would be how, how important is the global south? Uh, reaction to this war? I think it is important. And, you know, this war affects them. I remember seeing a lot of our work is looking on the instability that inflation alone uh, is, is bringing to the Middle East and, and parts of Africa on this. Um, I think it matters also because these questions of uh, of principles of what we are fighting for um, come up in many, many areas. But it is, I, I came out of that thinking uh, the implications of this for the US, for the UK, for the rest of Europe were that they were more isolated in this particular conflict than they would care to think, despite these appeals, to, I think rightly, to universal uh, principles, and that they're going to have to win both that war of uh, words, uh, but also the war on the ground um, with less automatic support than they thought, I think, when the invasion first happened. We are going to have to bring it to a close there. Uh, obviously, this question will go on. This has not been our cheeriest one. We're coming out of winter, talking about nuclear winter. But um, we will obviously keep coming back to this question. 
big, big thank you to my guests from Kiev, Maria Yonova, from Paris, Samantha de Bendon, and in the studio, almost, Patricia Lewis and James Nixie in the, uh, the anyway, the, the Chatham House um, virtual studio. A reminder, you can find all of Chatham House's podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all major platforms, as well as through our social media channels. So do like, follow, and subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I always ask. We always care. To read more from our experts, to find out about our events, to become a member, and we'd love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow in particular the recent work of our Russia and Eurasia program and our international security work. That's all for now. Goodbye. Thank you for listening.